Lord, open our eyes so that we can see the scriptures, open our minds to understand them, open our hearts to believe them, and open us up entirely that we could be transformed and obey them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, our uh, scripture this morning comes from the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 13. Now, Jesus went up the mountain and called for those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him, and he could send them to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. To James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. And Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Jesus went home, and a crowd gathered so that they were not able to eat. When his family heard this, they went out to restrain him, for they said, he's out of his mind. The experts in the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So he called to them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom will not be able to stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises against himself and is divided, he is not able to stand, and his end has come. But no one is able to enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can thoroughly plunder his house. I tell you the truth. People will be forgiven for all sins, even all the blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers uh, came. Standing outside, they sent word to him to summon him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them and said, Who, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, speak to us about your word. Father, as far as it depends on me, I, uh, I surrender and ask that you have your way 
in the preaching of the word. Lord, prepare every heart in this room that it would be like soft and rich soil, ready to receive the word of God and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I read quite a bit of uh, Mark 3 just now, and we tracked with Jesus through a few scenes. Each of them could be a sermon on their own, but one thing they have in common is that Jesus has some surprising behavior in these scenes. He does things that catch me off guard anyway. Uh, let me just give you a quick list. Here's five weird things that stick out to me. First, the disciples, after he, you know, forms the 12, they're told that one of sort of the three main prongs of their task to follow him is to cast out demons. That's surprising, especially, uh, you know, I, I've got like seven years of college and graduate education, and basically none of those classes covered casting out demons. It was all about the other one, preaching, really. Second, uh, his family thinks he's crazy, and he doesn't really address that one. Uh, he's out of his mind. That's what his family says. Third, Jesus tells a story in which basically every scholar and commentator agrees that in the story, Jesus is the thief who's tying up the homeowner and plundering the house. That's a surprising story for Jesus to tell, to present himself in that way. Fourth, he describes a sin that is unforgivable and has been freaking people out ever since. And fifth, he scandalizes his family by basically disowning them, saying, no, whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. Whoa, how do we make sense of these things that Jesus is doing in, in this story? I want to pull back a little bit and remember that if you kind of survey all of Mark, Mark has the Messiah on the move. That's why we that's, that's why we came up with that catchy title. Every new scene starts with Jesus went here. Jesus went there. That's, this, that's what happens in this passage. Jesus went up on the mountain and called the disciples to himself. Jesus went home. Then people come to the home. The Messiah is on the move. So we have two locations today. We have the mountaintop and we have the household. Briefly about both of these because they're both really, really important. Throughout all of Scripture, the mountaintop and the household are incredibly important. On the mountaintop, people meet with God and have transforming experiences with God. Abraham finally has the, his promised son Isaac, and what does God tell him to do? Climb that mountain and sacrifice. And of course, on the mountaintop, Abraham and Isaac have a profound experience where God offers a substitute for his son. On the mountaintop, Moses discovers this bush that's on fire, and a voice speaks to him and says, hey, you're going to go deliver my people from Egypt, and you're going to bring them back to this mountain. 
and they'll gather at this mountain and I'll tell them who they are. And so then, of course, on the mountaintop, Moses is in the storm and he, he gets the Ten Commandments and he gets uh, the whole law and he gets all these descriptions of, of how the people are supposed to be, especially what the house of Israel is supposed to be like. Well, on this mountaintop, in our story, it's not, um, it's not Moses being called up to meet with God. It's the 12 disciples being called up to meet with Jesus. But they're given a very similar challenge. Go and set my people free. Like That's what he tells them to do. They're sent to preach, announce his kingdom, and cast out demons. So on the mountaintop, we meet with God and, and maybe we get our marching orders. The other scene of these stories is the house. Your house kind of shapes your identity. The way you think about your home and your house, that's how you think about yourself. And if you search the word house throughout scripture, you will find it's everywhere and it it forms people's base, their identity, who they are, how they think about the world. Abraham always described his, his life as God called him from his father's house to go to an unknown place. He, God separated Abraham from his family line and started a new family line through him. Israel is built around God's house in the wilderness. It's the tabernacle is his house, and they refer to it as house, his house, and they follow God's house around. They're centered on God's house. At other times, Israel itself is referred to as the house of God. The only story we have of Jesus' childhood when he gets lost in Jerusalem and his parents finally find him in the temple, he said, didn't you realize I'd be in father's house. It's a little foreshadowing for our passage today. In this story, his family comes to try to get him to come home. They, they think, well, the conflicts that he's having with the religious leaders, they've gone too far. After all, we skipped over it, but Two scenes before this, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in, uh, in the synagogue, and the religious leaders decide that they're going to uh, assassinate him. They, they've resolved, we got to get rid of this guy. So his family's like, oh, pull back, all right? I, I do this with my three-year-old. If she comes out and she's grouchy in the morning, I say, hey, let's just go back to bed and start the day over. Like, let's get a fresh start. Let's pretend we're coming out fresh. And quite honestly, that works 40% of the time, but it does work <laughs> sometimes. That's what his family's trying to do with him. The religious leaders come to this crowded house, and they accuse him of being a servant in Satan's house. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, interesting ideas about what this name Beelzebul means. Uh, Beelzebub is generally translated Lord of the Flies, but Beelzebul is probably more like Lord of the Dwelling, Lord of the House, and that, that's, a, that's a nickname that had developed for Satan. 
you know, the dark one, Lucifer, whatever. That's a nickname that had developed for him. But it's interesting that they use that word. That he's the Lord of the house, Lord of the dwelling. They're saying, you're a servant in Satan's house, just doing his job. So in response to them, he tells a parable about houses and about plundering the house of the strong man. And then he insinuates that by accusing him of this, they have committed the unforgivable sin, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And then you switch back to his family, and they're still trying to get him to come home. Like, they were trying to get him to come home. We took a break to talk about the religious leaders and Beelzebul, and then there's still his family saying, seriously, please come home. Leave, let's go. And he rearranges the house. There's a new house. Anyone who does God's will is a member of the new house. So, again, what do we make of all this? We've got the mountaintop and we've got the house. Well, pun intended, the key to unlock all of this. Oh, thanks, you guys. You're nice. The key to unlock this is really what Jesus responds to the religious leaders. His parables, so to speak, about plundering the house. So we'll get into those a little bit. But in these two scenes, the mountaintops and the house, this is the first time Jesus is really describing his relationship with demons. There's been a lot of demons in Mark. Actually, nearly every scene of Mark, Jesus is going around doing his thing, and someone comes who's got a demon, and they start shouting at him and saying, I know who you are, and blah, blah, blah. And Jesus casts out the demon and tells them to be quiet. It happens regularly. I, I've been thinking about, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of thoughts like, why does Jesus quiet them? Like, hey, it's free advertising. <laughs> Um, you know, why is he quieting these demons? But, but here's the deal. The demons, I mean, there's demons, okay? You, you probably don't want to entrust your message to demons. Um, but they're, they're story stealers in this. You guys know what I mean. When something cool happens to you, something exciting, and you tell one friend, and then the next time you and that friend are with other people, that friend tells your story, and they get all the attention for your, you know, what happened to you. I, here's the, I have done this to many people in this room. And I'm really sorry about it. On reflection of this story, I realized I was acting demonically. They're story stealers. The, the demonic world wants to take control of Jesus' message to take the attention off of him. It's such a subtle ploy. And so Jesus is all, he's, he's just getting them out of the spotlight. Like, be, go away, be quiet. And it's so easy for him every time. And now he finally talks about it. When he gives his disciples authority to cast them out, he's making his mission very clear. Jesus has come to break the power of Satan and to liberate people from him just like Moses was sent to Egypt to liberate people from Pharaoh. That's what Jesus has come to do. So demons, eh? 
We're, we're talking about demons in 2021? Well, what's next? Are we going to talk about ghosts and vampires and trolls? Like, what are we doing here? We, we, have, we feel like we've advanced all the time. We explain spiritual darkness and personal torment away with talk of mental illness, right? Maybe drug addiction, maybe mind-altering drugs, or just active imaginations. And if you, if you dig into it, sociologists, historians, philosophers, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, so many of them come to a point where they realize that some of the darkness they're encountering in people cannot be explained by mere chemical malfunction in the brain. It cannot be explained that way. The horrific ways that humanity has distorted goodness and justified evil cannot be explained purely with descriptions of greed or mental illness or drugs. We have not advanced beyond the people in the first century who recognize these things for what they are. In many ways, we have blindfolded ourselves. For uh, several years here in Littleton, I had the privilege of uh, going uh, for a, a weekly visit to the Bridge House. So the Bridge House is run by the All Health Network, formerly Rapo Douglas Mental Health Network. The Bridge House is an acute uh, hold facility, particularly for people who are in you know, psychiatric distress. They're a danger to themselves or to others, or they're just unable really to function uh, in a healthy way, and so they need, it's, it's supposed to be five to seven day holds. People get lost in the system and sometimes end up there for months. And so um, the director of the Bridge House was a believer at the time, and she had called a bunch of pastors, and, and I was the one who uh, agreed to do it. Uh, I think she called every other pastor in town, but then she found me. So um, what I would do is I would go and I would hold a, you know, a 30 or 45 minute discussion. A group of volunteers, you know, people would volunteer to come and, you know, it's an open discussion about spiritual health. That's what she wanted me to talk about, spiritual health. It's holistic care, right? So we talk about spiritual health and then uh, every time, you know, I would introduce myself as a pastor and they gave me permission to say, if anyone would like to stay afterward and, you know, talk one-on-one -on -one or pray together, I'd be happy, happy to do that with you. And people always essentially lined up to do this. One week, a man stayed back for prayer. He was the first one in line. And in, you know, as he described his situation, he's really calmly and clearly described how he felt that he was in bondage. He was in just great bondage and he longed for freedom. And so, okay, great. Like I'm a Christian minister, so I'm happy to pray about that. So we pray, you know, we're praying about breaking the chains in his life and praying about this bondage that he's feeling. You know, he, he amen, he thanks me and uh, he, you know, gets up and leaves and the next person comes in and just a minute or two into the next person being with me, uh, the alarms go off and like you hear all the doors, all the automatic locks go, like the building goes on lockdown. And so I find a staff person and say, what, what is going on? And the guy says, 
that guy you just met with ran out, hopped the fence, and ran. Like, not the freedom I was praying for. But he took the prayer really literally. You know, that's great. That's great. The truth is, though, that every time I went, every single time I went to the bridge house, people would describe to me tormenting voices and visions that they experienced, a voice in their room telling them to hurt themselves or to hurt other people, telling them how terrible and bad and wicked they are, telling them that they're dirt or trash, dreams that were uh, awful. Every week, it was so normal at the bridge house. These terrible things, I came to expect it. This is, this is a reality, church. And it, it is one of the three primary things that Jesus gives to his disciples. He gives them these three amazing things. Be with me. Preach the message. And cast out demons. There's being a disciple of Jesus, according to Mark 3. Be with Jesus so that we can be sent by him to preach the message and we can have his authority to cast out demons. I like the way a a New Testament scholar, James Edwards, explains these three responsibilities. He says that they have three elements to them. A relational element, that is, we're to be with Jesus, this constant relationship. There's a verbal element, that is, we're to proclaim the truth about him. And the behavioral element. By this, he's talking about, you know, casting out demons. This is the active mission of Jesus' followers. He writes, disciples are not simply defined by what they stand for, but also what they stand against. They are commissioned to confront demonic and evil powers, however they manifest themselves, and to confront them not only in thought and word, but in action Church, Jesus has given us this authority. And I think generally we're terrified to use it. But he has called us to be agents of his freedom. We are not a general practice, do-good organization. We are agents of the freedom of King Jesus. Set people free from all the sorts of bondage they experience. Uh, Years ago, before I had kids, I uh, thought I would like to be a motorcycle rider. (laughs) And so so when I told my mom, she cried. Uh, You know, I just told her I was thinking about buying a motorcycle, and she she wept in front of me. So, uh, good, she's a good mom. And uh, so, in order to appease her, I decided to sign up for a motorcycle safety class, which is a really good idea. And so, you go to class, and the first half of the class is is lecture. And so, we're learning all of these things about riding motorcycles. And and there are good things that we learned about, you know, here's the situation, so it's really hard for cars to see you, and here's some other things you need to know. I still remember a, a couple of those things. But after the lecture, none of us had any idea how to ride a motorcycle. 
It wasn't until we went out into the big parking lot and there's all the cones and you have to ride around the little things, you know, and practice stopping and, you know, start up your bike and turn it off and, and see what happens when, you, when it stalls out and, and whatever. Um, that's, that's where you learn to ride a motorcycle. You can know the concepts, but church, I think in some ways, casting out demons, as strange as it sounds, that's us getting on the bike and firing it up. When the religious leaders accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, he uses it as an opportunity to explain his, his relationship with demons, what he's doing. First, he says, you guys, your, your accusation is nonsense. If I was doing that, then it would be Satan fighting against Satan, and no house divided against itself can stand. Satan would be defeating himself. But then he tells this story. Consider what it takes to take a strong man's house. And he talks about the strong man. Of course, this word for strong man is actually just like strong one. It's just one word, sort of strong, the strong, the house of the strong. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I, we, we were praying about this this morning, that God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. Same word. Same word. So to take the strong man's house, you have to first bind him. That's right. You have to go in and subdue him and tie his hands. You have to bind him. What he's describing here is not merely the defeat of Satan, but the humiliation of Satan. To humiliate the strong man, Jesus has to go into his house and bind him, and then Satan has to watch as Jesus takes all of the stolen treasure out. This isn't yours anymore. That's how Jesus describes his mission binding the strong man and taking the goods back from him. So where is the strong man's house? Well, death is the strong man's house, the realm of death. Death, the distortion of God's good, living creation that entered into the story when Adam and Eve disobeyed. That's the strong man's house. So... Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the one who is entering the house, and that means Satan has been defeated. Jesus makes himself very clear. Satan doesn't self-destruct. I beat him down. All right? He didn't lose the game. I won the game, is what Jesus is saying. And powerless to stop it, Satan has to watch Jesus waltz through his house and remove the precious things. And in doing so, Jesus is redefining the whole house, all of the households of the world. I'm the Lord of the house. It's mine. So after binding the strong man, Jesus has to rearrange. It's just like the call of Abraham, who left his father's house and started a new household, a new nation. So here, when his family tries to come and get him to come home, he has to tell them the hard truth. There's a new house. What matters is not who your parents and brothers and sisters in the blood are, but who your Lord is. When you obey the call of the Spirit and come to me, you join my family. When you reject the call of the Spirit or 
or when you even call the Spirit's work demonic, you're an enemy. You've identified yourself as an enemy of the Lord. The Apostle Paul does a lot of good for us to help us understand all of this, especially in the letter to the Colossians. He's encouraging and warning the believers in Colossae in that letter. On the one hand, we have to be careful not to give ourselves over to empty philosophies or elemental spirits which seek to captivate us. That is, they, they bring us into their homes as slaves. This is in Colossians chapter 2. But on the other hand, he reminds the Colossian Christians and us that we've been raised to new life in Christ who forgave all our transgressions. He has, Paul says, destroyed what was against us, the certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authority. He has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here's the explanation we need. By, the, by means of the cross, the strong man is bound. And yet, through empty teachings and what Paul calls elemental spirits, we can still find ourselves serving as slaves in his house. I was picturing sort of a Hannibal Lecter situation. Sorry to bring Silence of the Lambs into Sunday morning, everyone. But, and if you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending it. But here's this this brilliant, wicked cannibal um, who's in prison and, you know, this, this police officer, this detective goes and starts to interview him to try to understand another serial killer and he is trying to manipulate her and bind her and bring her into his power even though he's in prison. Well, this one, this, this Hannibal Lecter will never escape. His execution date is coming. He's being kept alive only to watch his humiliation. The undoing of the work he started when he deceived even Adam in the garden. Every love that is turned toward Christ is somebody set free to be with him. Every preached truth that is believed and loved, every demon that is cast out is another jewel that is liberated from his stolen treasure. That's how Jesus describes spiritual warfare. So Jesus triumphed over Satan and his house of death by means of the cross. That's why whenever we proclaim the death of Jesus, we are actually proclaiming the victory of Jesus. What happens when you go to somebody's house, a victorious person as a guest? What happens after the battle is won? You feast, right? That's what you do. You're welcome to the hosts, the victorious ones' table. Well, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. So it was the start of the season of Lent. We're in the season of Lent by the church calendar now. And as we, as we often do, we uh, partnered for Ash Wednesday with our Anglican brothers and sisters, and we had basically an Anglican Lenten service on uh, on Wednesday night, and it was I I, I love those. I'm you know I'm like a closet Anglican, so sorry. Um, when it came time to gather at the Lord's table, Pastor Tim introduced all of us to, and he was introduced. 
bring his church to it as well, to a Kenyan Anglican prayer for joining together at the table. And I thought it was so moving and so powerful that we're going to do it more or less throughout all of Lent. We're going to be led by our Kenyan brothers and sisters in coming to the table. This prayer climaxes with a fantastic rhyme. The lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Oh, man. This is the victory of God. So, let's be led by the Kenyan church together. Here's what's going to happen. Usually, you guys just sit and listen to me institute the meal and, and, and say the words that Jesus taught in the Gospels but we're going to enter into this together. So you'll see on the screen uh, some call and response. And, uh, you know, I'm not telling you how to feel, but get into it. <laughs> so you can go to that slide. Is the Father with us? Yes. Is Christ among us? Yes. Is the Spirit here? This is our God. We are his people. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. All together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. On the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Jesus is Lord. This is the feast of victory. Christ is alive forever. We are one body. Draw near with faith. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So church, with those words, we come to the table and we, we receive the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we proclaim the Lord's death, that is his victory, until he comes.